educator right there. Aww. All right, well, I'll, I'll get started yeah, with stuff. We do not need another injury. <laughs> okay. Good afternoon, everyone. I think, is that really, really loud? It seems really loud. I don't know. Okay. Well, thanks for coming. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and we appreciate your coming to this session of Nursing Grand Rounds, Communication in Palliative Nursing, Comfort Beyond Bad News. Before we begin, I have a few reminders. After the program, you will receive an email from our office, the Center for Continuing Education, with a link to an online evaluation. Upon completion of the evaluation, your credit will be automatically posted to your online transcript. This ties completing the evaluation to receiving credit, so you really do need to complete that evaluation. And even if you don't need the credit, we do value your input, so please um, complete that evaluation. It'll only take you a few minutes. For those in the room, please be sure you've signed in, and you must attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit. <clears throat> For those viewing online, if you do have any questions during the presentation, Judy Langhans is monitoring her email, and you can send her an email, and she'll share the question or comment with our speaker. Her email is judith.m, as in May, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Also, for folks viewing online, please email Judy within one hour of completion of the program and include your name, degree, and zip code. Um, there are instructions on how to access your online transcript by the sign-in sheet, or you can contact Judy directly. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity, uh, and no one refused to disclose. And now I would like to introduce you to our speaker for this presentation, Lisa Stevens. Lisa is an adult nurse practitioner and certified advanced practice hospice and palliative care nurse with more than 20 years experience in hospice and palliative nursing. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in nursing from Ursuline? Ursuline, College. Ursuline College in Ohio and a Master of Science in nursing from Kent State University in Ohio. Lisa currently works as lead nurse planner on the palliative care service here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. She's an instructor in the Department of Medicine and in the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, providing palliative care learning experiences for medical and advanced pra practice nursing students and many medical residents as well. She received a Department of Medicine Excellence in Teaching Award in 2006. Lisa lectures often, we ask her quite frequently, on general palliative care topics and pain and symptom management locally, regionally, and nationally. She gets fabulous evaluations. We're happy to have her here. And so without further ado, I'll turn this over to Lisa. So thanks everyone for coming and for those of you who are uh, listening online, um, I'm excited to be here. I'm gonna talk a little bit about communication in palliative care and actually this is really about communication when people are facing a life-limiting illness or have gotten bad news. It's really not meant for just end of life, but for a way to upstream the kind of work that we do so well as nurses. Um, COMFORT stands is an acronym that stands for um, a way to think about um, communication, and it's a curriculum that was developed um, by some wonderful communication experts and Betty Farrell, and some of you may know of Betty's work in palliative care and oncology nursing. And she's, they've written a couple of books about uh, communication in palliative nursing and how to upstream this. And so this is a curriculum, and if you're interested in it, um, there's a, like seven modules or more on each, each letter um, has a, a module. So it's available online, and um, we certainly can't think in the future about how to implement such a curriculum even within nursing here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So... Um, just to then start, I want to talk a little bit about um, patient-centered communication and why that's so important, discuss some of the communication strategies that engage patients in difficult uh, conversations, and how important the psychosocial concerns are. 
Um, and then maybe even ex um, talk a little bit about sharing this information with our colleagues to help them feel more comfortable and understand patient-centered preferences and goals. So palliative nursing, actually there is a value to, um, to palliative nursing. And all of us, I think, we all do palliative nursing. We all see patients who have been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness wherever we are. And it's obviously based on caring, the respect of human dignity. We advocate for the attention to quality of life. That's just core to nursing. It's embedded in nursing practice. And we provide consistent presence to patients and families. We're the ones at the bedside. We're the ones hearing the story. We're the ones bearing witness to this intensity that patients have just received bad news. And we promote quality of life for patients and families facing serious life-limiting illness. We use our expert assessment. Symptom management, that's core to palliative nursing or core to nursing. And then the art of compassion, openness, mindfulness, and skillful communication. And I think that's what's really what I'd like to focus on today is our skill for skillful communication. So palliative care was founded by nurses. Dame Cicely Saunders, she's probably the only person I know who's an interdisciplinary team all in one. And she actually was a nurse first. And then she became um, a social worker. And then she became a physician because she was seeing patients dying badly. And back then, you know, a physician, she, she approached a physician colleague and he said, she said, how do I change this? He said, study medicine. And the one thing about Dame Cicely Saunders is she never lost her nursing background. She never lost the, the, the core of, of who she was, which was, you know, a nurse. And um, part of what she did was she carried over 1,000, thousands of patient stories. How important the narrative, how important the story is uh, to nursing and how we can make a difference. And then we have Florence Wald and, you know, uh, um, a couple of us have had the opportunity to meet Florence, but Deb, obviously, from Yale, and, and Florence was probably gone by the time you were there, but she was the dean of Yale School of Nursing and actually the founder of Connecticut Hospice, the first hospice in, in uh, the United States, uh, modeled after Dame Cicely Saunders, who was the founder of palliative, or the modern-day palliative care movement in England. And then Jean uh, Benalil, and she was one of the first researchers, nurse researchers, who really focused her research on looking at dying patients, their experiences, um, and so forth. And so nursing is important. It was, um, palliative nursing was founded by nurses, or palliative care was founded by nurses. And, um, and what we see in here is, is how important the lived experience and the narrative and what what patients bring their stories to how we care for them. So I'm going to talk about, just briefly, just running through a couple of concepts called um, comfort. And it's a way to approach communication, and it sort of helps us understand some of these concepts that we bring into nursing every day. Um, for more information, there is a website that you can certainly go to, and I have an article that, um, that I can share as well. Um, but this is... Uh, um, a curriculum that was published by Wittenberg and Goldsmith and Farrell. So the first part of communication, obviously, um, the C stands for comfort, or the C stands for communication, sorry. The tasks that we have as nursing, obviously, is teaching. We teach, we advocate, and we coordinate. Those are the three main tasks that we do in palliative nursing and in communication. It's relational. So we want to make sure that when we talk to patients and families, we provide comfort and caring. That's just part of what we do. And we share information. So we want to share information, and we need to have it um, go back and forth. But bearing witness, obviously, is one of the most important things that we struggle with because of the profound nature of what we do, but also how important it is to recognize just by being present, by bearing witness, it makes a difference in patients' lives. Bearing witness in includes recognizing the individuality of the patient, understanding who they are as people prior to their illness, and focusing beyond the medical information. It's not about what they have. It's about how this affects them as people. 
So let me talk about, I'm going to just call her Karen. She's a 39-year-old woman who I met several years ago. And um, it was tough to bear witness to her situation, primarily because I'm a mom, I have a couple of kids, and, um, and she touched me, you know, really. Um, so she was brought into the hospital, and I was the consultant on the palliative care service at the time. And she was in her usual state of health, and, you know, she's been having some right upper quadrant pain and sort of nausea, vomiting kind of stuff. She went and had an ultrasound, and they found cholelithiasis. So next day, she goes in for an elective, lap coli. Some of us in this room have had one. No, no big deal, no brainer. Um, but while in there, they found a firm mass in her gallbladder. And she came out basically knowing that she had metastatic uh, adenocarcinoma of the gallbladder. When I met her, I went in and did my typical palliative nursing thing where I sat down at the bedside and I said, <coughs> you know, I explained my service, why I'm here. Um, you know, we help people with comfort and quality of life. We help them with medical decision making. We're really a supportive arm and a team to help follow you along. Tell me what you know about your, your situation right now, just to sort of get a sense of where they're coming from. And the first thing she did, and her husband, who was calm and gentle and loving, said, these are my children. There was a third picture of her 13-year-old daughter and her 15-year-old son. So that was bearing witness, right? This wasn't about the cancer. This wasn't about her making medical decisions. This was about, this is affecting me. This is affecting my family. This is affecting my ability to be a mom. And I'm sorry, every time I tell that story, I sort of get choked up because this was you know, a pretty intense situation. And she was a very loving person. So what do we do? How do we go behind beyond the medical facts? Well, we want to make sure that um, we ask certain questions. We can say, what people are important to you? Who's supporting you? What needs to change? What do you worry about? How is this experiencing, experience affecting your life? That's important. That's how, when we have fam families or colleagues, mostly, who say, they just don't get it. Why are they keeping going on this chemotherapy? Why are they continuing to be intubated when they, you know, it's because of this. It's because of their family. You know, they don't, it's hard to bear the idea of leaving your children sooner than you really want to. So it helps for us to understand these things. And it also helps for us to be patient-centered and understand how do we approach patients when we're not the nurses in the room giving the bad news, but the docs come in and they give the bad news and they leave and who's left to sort of support the patients and families? They're crying, you can go in now. You know, and so that's really what happens. And so I think it's important to understand, well, how do we approach a patient when we know that they've got, just gotten some bad news? And so as you look at these responses, which one would you think would be the most patient-centered? I can see why you're upset. That's a normal reaction. Or I'm so sorry this has happened to you. Do you think it was coming? And you might even say, was that something you expected? Maybe not did you think it was coming, but I, I like something a little softer. Or let's talk about your treatment from this point forward. We really need to do some chemo teaching. Can I see you tomorrow? Which one do you think would be the best one to approach a patient? Yeah, I think B. I think B is really, you know, it acknowledges the patient's feelings. It's feeling-based. Um, and uh, it really does make a difference to recognize that. So when discussing bad news, we, we don't really give bad news so much as we are there at the end of it and we confirm it, we help explain medical information around it. But it's important to be clear, to explain and elaborate as you're able to, to respond to um, the impact on the life. I think that's what's really important, you know, and how this is, is uh, impacting their life and show clear respect for feelings and integrate their life and work into the decision-making process, address pain and obviously plan, present team structure and help them understand what supports are gonna be in place as they go forward. 
So the nurse does have a unique role. We're present before, during, sometimes, and after the bad news. And we're vulnerable to questions, right? So we have to be prepared to what to say or, and a lot of times it's really just reflecting back, saying, what do you think? How do you feel about this? What do you worry most about? And we may not have the answer for what, you know, how to fix what they worry. We're not here to fix what they worry about, but we're here to communicate that and advocate for them and help them so they feel more comfortable with whatever, you know, they are worrying about. We can try to help um, minimize their worry and educate. We validate bad news and aid the patient in accepting by doing that. So the challenges. Now, I'm going to go back and probably put somebody on the spot here, but as you think about what challenges come up for you as you're doing this, you know, what, what kinds of things have come up for you as nurses around challenges in, in being either there after bad news or during bad news? Yeah. One of the worst things is when you have, so I work in the ICU, and so we have a lot of different teams, and if one team gives one, you know, set of information, then team gives another set of information, and they look for the nurse to clarify, and if you're not sure, then it can be really hard, or maybe it's a diagnosis that you've never seen before, and they're asking you a lot of questions, and, um, and that can be really tough for all of our nurses. Yeah, absolutely. Can you repeat that? So the... the the question or you know, the statement really was how complex it is sometimes for the nurse because we're in a teaching institution. There are many teams that come into the intensive care unit. They give a piece of information to patients and families. Another team may give a different piece of information. The nurse may not have the full knowledge of, of really um, what the procedure might be and she's basically left to sort of sort it out with the patient and family. And I think, you know, the suggestion I might have there is that you take that information from the patient and family, you, under, you know, try to understand what their questions are, maybe what your questions are too as a nurse, and do what you can to try to create uh, a way to touch base with both of those teams. Or sometimes, you know, as, as you know, we've called, you know, complex care rounds and tried to involve different um, teams so that we can all be on the same page. That's complex, it's difficult to do. Um, but it's, it's totally worth it in some of those cases. What other things come up for you? <coughs> yeah. Yesterday we had a challenging situation where the physician I was working with gave permission to leave to talk to one of our patients. But it's important to know that maybe there's other things also really troublesome in their lives. Uh, this patient's wife didn't admit it until actually, thankfully, there was a social worker in the room who was there talking with and the patient said, tell her, and her mother had just died the night before. And their granddaughter was dealing with brain stem cancer. Yeah. And they're dealing with her husband having progressive disease. Right. So all of that on top of the progressive disease that they were dealing with at that moment in that room. Right. So, so sometimes, um, just for the audience listening, is that we give information, but we also don't know what else is happening in the patient's life. And there were, in this particular situation where the discussion was about the patient's progression of disease, within the family, there was also a recent death and um, another cancer. And so this was creating a lot of family stress. And, you know, and how do we protect patients from that? I don't know, um, except to just be aware. You know, I was dealing with a situation this week, actually, that was um, pretty profound. It, um gentleman who has um, polycystic kidney disease and very bad kidney function and very bad heart function. And he came in with a pneumonia, and his family was angry. They were angry because, you know, wait a minute, why didn't you get this chest x-ray a month ago? He's been suffering for three weeks. So I go and I talk to the guy because they say, you know, you know him from outpatient. Um, could you come and help us with goals of care and sort things out for them? And they're angry, and I just want them to understand that anything we do for him because he's so sick or any little illness could cause, uh, you know, a significant morbidity and mortality. So I go in, I touch base with them, and I say, how's it going? Well, you know, my family was just here, and my mom, how's your mom doing? Well, you know, she's 87, but George just died. Well, who's George? Tell me about George. 
Well, George is my brother. And out of 10 children, five of them have polycystic kidney disease, and three of the boys are, two of them are on dialysis, and one is, is my patient who hasn't elected dialysis yet. And George called, so he's telling me, well, you know, he called my mom, he went to dialysis, he called my mom, he sounded okay, and then my mom hung up the phone, and 15 minutes later, they called my sister to say he died. So here this, this guy and his family is dealing with the fact that George just died on dialysis suddenly two weeks ago, and here is this guy in the hospital. So it's important to understand the context. It's important for all of us to say, okay, we're not going to judge him because, or his family because they're dealing with this. Of course they're scared. They don't want to lose their other brother right now. This is not the time for their mom to, to deal with another loss. Yeah. Yes, and that is so hard. And part of that is called mindfulness, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. Sorting through your own feelings and how you might feel, what you might do, why this is touching your heart so much, like this 39-year-old lady. Anytime, and I still, it's like I'm far away from it, but anytime I think about what that symbolized there by handing me the picture of her children, is just, it, it cuts me in my throat. I mean, I got a lump in my throat that day, you know, when I was in her office, because I identify with it. That's what's hard about this work, but it's also what's important. You know, it makes us compassionate and able to do the work, but we have to recognize, okay, I'm doing a little too much here because this is like my brother, you know? So you have to be aware of those kinds of identifications. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert at that kind of stuff, where there's some psych people here in the room who are more so. So let's move on a little bit. Um, so we talked about how hard it is sometimes not even to be present when that bad news is delivered, or you wish it could have just been, oh gosh, they're saying it's so harsh, you know, and you want to protect the patient and the family. Sometimes the physician has some assumptions about your role. Like, how much can I talk about this with the patient? Are they going to feel like I'm like overstepping my bounds or stepping on toes? And ambiguity sometimes about our role within the team. And it's important to know that we have a role. We do have a role. And I lost my glasses, so please forgive me. <laughs> Old. Okay, so I want to next, I want to show you, um, so here's just a couple of quotes uh, over the phone. When you're not present, I know this is not ideal, but I can talk to you now over the phone about your health, and can we meet together tomorrow to talk more? I don't know. Um, I think that if you're not present, since I was not there for the news, can you tell me how the conversation went with the team? And then you can listen for cues and questions, but really just be open-ended, you know? Tell me how it went. What did you take from it? I want to play this video for you because I think it might spark a little bit of communication um, between us all, conversation. This is David. He did a, a blog on his Good cancer morning. journey. I'm sorry, I can't be at a uh, faculty meeting today, and I've missed a few recently, so, you know, I apologize that, for that, too. You know, my best part of these meetings is when we go around the circle and everybody shares, you know, their professional story or whatever's uh, an item of interest. But what I like most is are those times when, you know, someone shares, you know, maybe some sad news. Or particularly, it's great when they share some hilarious news and we all have a good laugh. Well, this morning I have some sad news that I want to share with you, you know, about me. And I think it's important because I think you'd like to know. I've been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And it's not curable. Manageable, we hope, with treatments, and, you know, how long do I have? Well, you know, we don't know. Not sure. It's called nasal geron... Uh, you know, I'm going to have to look at this. <laughs> nasal pharyngeal cancer. It's behind the nose. It's a little bitty thing, but it is spread. And it's spread to the lymph nodes, and worse, it's spread to bone metastasis. So that's kind of the bad deal. Um, 
but I've got a great healthcare team. I really do. And, you know, whether they appear on all the charts, I can guarantee you there are a bunch of docs right here in this room that are part of that team. That just, that's just great. It feels really good. Now, I've heard these treatments, uh, which I will start, I think, next Monday. Uh, they'll be chemo and perhaps radiation and maybe both of them at the same time. I'm not sure yet, but have them, I will. They start Monday on the 17th is our best guess. And, you know, uh, I've heard those uh, treatments can be brutal, uh, but I'm not going to let them get the best of me. You can be assured of that. In fact, I have purchased two uh, puke buckets, you know? I've heard about the side effects. One of the puke buckets is going to have a, a Kansas Jayhawk logo on it, and the other bucket's going to have a Boomer Sooner logo on it. And you can guess who's going to get that second bucket, possibly with shit in it, you know? That would be a good deal. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to this in a way. Uh, it's going to be an exciting, exciting chapter in my life. And if there was ever a time to be a good teacher, you know, this is it. I've got a chance. I can really, I think, come through. I want to do it well. And with your help, I think I can do that. So drop by. Uh, you might get a little bit of teasing and a little bit of fun, but I'll let you give me a hug, and uh, we'll just go on with this. I think I want to say one other thing. Let me look here. Um, yeah, I did. You can hug Peggy and certainly Debbie. You know, they're taking this kind of hard. But um, we're going to get through it. And it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Thanks a lot. Egg two. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're not going to watch well, hello. egg two. Um, but I do want to just touch base with you guys on Again, this. it's me. And, and just sort of ask you, um, tell me a little bit about what you see in this video with Dave. What's important to you, or what do you think is important to him about his life? What things have, did you pick up on as nurses when somebody approaches you about this? Yeah? His work and his students on whoever he was addressing are important to him, and they're part of life, maybe part of the family. So right. he wanted to share the bad news, and he was really upbeat about it. Yeah, yeah. So his, his students, his colleagues are important to him. Sense of humor, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, so interacting with sense of humor, you almost wonder whether he's hiding behind the sense of humor, that there's a lot behind it that he's not letting out. Right. So you may even say at that point, so Dave, gosh, you're taking this really well. You know, what do you worry about? Are there any things? Are there things that you worry about? So, anything else? Yeah. He wants people to take care of his family. He wants people to take care of his family. Peggy and Debbie, they're very important to him. What else about him? Trying to stay positive. Yeah, absolutely. And he's into sports and joking and puke buckets. But do you know, as nurses who are in oncology who know this, um, what would you tell him about those puke buckets? How might you lighten that up a little bit for him? Put flowers in them and say you may not even need them. That's right. Yeah, you know what? That's cool, but you may not need these. Yeah. You may never, never need these, so that's great. So I think that's just really just to make observations, to be present with patients, and to really recognize, well, what are they telling me through all of the, their story? So orienting, um, this is another, this is, this is uh, what the O stands for in comfort. Um, orientation or orienting communication is, um, really helping families understand their care options and their status. And there's opportunities as well for appreciating um, uh, and articulating opportunities for treatment. We're going to make sure that we empower the patient and family. And then secondly, we're also going to make sure that we share opportunities that patients will have. And that, would, that opportunity it might be, I see that you have these puke buckets. You're not going to probably need them. And here's what we're going to do to make sure that you do well as long as you can throughout your treatments. But we also have to take into account health literacy in that because there's no way of orienting 
um, patients without making sure that we understand where they are in their understanding of disease. And even though he's a faculty member, he's got some misunderstandings about his illness, or at least what to expect going forward. Um, we want to make sure that we understand where they're coming from, their language, their context, and their culture. Um, and these are just some things that you might say as you open doors to understanding where their health literacy is at. Um, what experiences are most important to you? What fears or worries do you have? And do you have any other fears or worries? What do you hope for? And what kinds of needs does your family have? Also, we're going to be translating medical information, and we want to use, uh, this is just basic, basic nursing, using the metaphors and terms that they understand and help to educate in the context of who they are as people in their daily lives, as well as convey this information to the other healthcare team members. So mindfulness. Mindfulness, really, you know, I'm probably the least... I'm not the most mindful person in the world. As Deb will tell you, coming from a family of six, I walk right into her all the time. I have no idea of spatial relations. You know, and I'm not always mindful of where I am in a crowd. But I'm mindful when I put my nurse practitioner hat on my nursing hat. I sit down with patients. I make eye contact. I'm aware that I'm not fidgeting, that I'm not chewing my fingers, that I don't cross my legs, that I'm not sitting like this in a patient room. You always have to be aware. That's what mindfulness is, is being present, being attentive to the patient and the family, and recognizing where you are in space when you're in that room. It comes from the Buddhist philosophy, and it's about being attentive and aware, as I said, and being aware that we can't do those habitual behaviors. Shaking our foot or tapping our foot is going to be distracting and avoid um, being mindful. Um, making sure that we're present, that we have trust, that we're patient, that we're open, that we're without judgment. And it requires being perceptive, active listening, getting involved and creating space. Being is as valuable as doing. And here I want to talk a little bit about my friend Peggy. Peggy Bishop, who some of you know, um, was someone I worked with for 10 years here, and we remained friends. And Peggy, um, I hired her in 2003, or she came in at the tail end, or the beginning of 2004. And so Peg and I um, really created and embedded um, palliative nursing in the cancer center here. And we would uh, job share. Um, she'd do two weeks of outpatient palliative care in the outpatient cancer center, and I would do two weeks. And then we would do two weeks of inpatient when we were not doing outpatient. And one of the things that Peggy did when she was just learning palliative nursing, I mean, she had experience as an oncology nurse practitioner, but really didn't do palliative nursing full time. And this was her first palliative nursing job in that regard. She'd say and come out of patient rooms sometimes, she's like, Lisa, I don't know that I'm doing anything for them. I'm just sitting there listening. I'm just being present. And I said, Peg, you have no idea how important just being present is and how they will value you. And that's something that I learned actually because I was a hospice nurse before I came here. But we still struggle, you know, and this is something that Peggy quoted. <laughs> this is off her Facebook page. I told her I was going to use her quote. <laughs> Hard day at work. There's something about a birth year of 1993 and dying that seems incompatible. Will it hurt? The only question asked. And sometimes showing up is all I've got. And I think that's true. I think showing up sometimes is all we've got, and that's what nurses continue to bring to this important part of, of life. So empathy, listening for feelings, witnessing the suffering of others, but being aware of how that suffering is affecting us and talking to our team members so we can avoid compassion fatigue as we go forward. And, um, and being patient. Focus on feeling words, note general content of the message, observe the speaker's body language, don't fake it or fake an understanding, and um, do not tell them how they feel, but ask them, how are you feeling? These are just some other tips for other aspects of listening that obviously we, we know, but this is sort of just important to include in, in the um, 
the curriculum. And as I said, each part of this curriculum is so can go in depth and be a whole lecture in and of itself. So I think it's important for all of us, many of us who do uh, this kind of nursing, we're involved in family meetings a lot, some of the ICU nurses obviously and in the cancer center, we're going to really be the people who watch the family to look at for emotional clues, to practice silence, and to be um, and observe other team members for compassion fatigue. And the way we avoid some of that is supporting each other, encouraging self-compassion and self-reflection. One of uh, the best nursing supervisors that I ever had would always put on evaluations, increase self-awareness because that only enhances the kind of care that we can deliver. If we know ourselves, if we know what triggers us, if we know um, that, then we can be more present to patients and be more authentic and be able to make a difference in a way that doesn't serve my needs, it serves the patient's needs. So be aware of your motivations going forward, obviously, and your thoughts and feelings. So the F stands for family. And you know, many of you know the definition of palliative nursing is that family is the unit of care. The patients and the family is the unit of care. And how important family members are in helping patients make medical decisions going forward. Um, so it's important to recognize what's going on with the patient and family. What is going on with their, with their family? Do they have a cancer? Was there a recent loss? Is there a, you know, something different going on? Um, that makes uh, that makes the patient choose different treatment options that they might not choose otherwise. Um, and I think as nurses, we have to recognize that we're, there, there's some predictable interactions to um, for family communication efforts to become focused on the nurse. Oftentimes, we're the ones, as you said, Miriam, that we are mediating oftentimes between the patient's family and the physician. And we can shape or and protect families. So it's important for us to, to recognize that. We have to adapt to the family structure. And family meetings, uh, we should definitely be part of. Um, and they, they should address family uncertainty. And then there's also importance to understand what the surrogate decision maker um, and how they're feeling and offering support there. Anybody have any questions about family and how sometimes it can be more complicated or um, trouble you might be having with family communication? Okay. So the next, the O stands for openings. And really that's to recognize that there are certain times that we have to be aware of so we don't miss any opportunities. There's many opportunities to create more um, of ability to talk to patients, to help educate patients, to, to input some information about maybe a complex thing such as hospice or a transition of care. And so making sure that you're aware of what those openings are, facilitating information for patients, healthcare information, creating intimate openings, um, uh, and then understanding the impact of self-disclosure. And so there's a place for self-disclosure, as some of you know. But really it's about, about um, making sure that the self-disclosure meets the patient's needs and it's not about my need. Like, I, I'm not going to sit there and tell you, yeah, you know, when my mom died, I did that too, because that's really for me. But you might be able to still use something like that in a patient interaction to say, you know, I see you struggling with, I can give you an example. Um, so I have this lovely couple who have been together for 44 years. And the um, wife, they're a uh, uh, same gendered couple, um, is caring for her elderly um, spouse who also, who has a terminal illness. And the spouse who's dying says to me, I worry about her. I really want her to go on with her life. You know, I feel like I don't want her to watch me decline and get so sick. And here's the other person sitting next to her, her spouse, who's crying. And I said, you know, I've been through this 
once in my life. And I don't tell this to people often, but I had a partner who died of a brain tumor. And I said, you weren't a, you know, she wasn't a burden on me. And I know that that's how Nancy feels right now. She doesn't feel you're a burden, that you're still here, that you're still able to be present, your warmth, your brain, your love, you know, that's all still here. And it, I think it was, a, it was a nice little, it was really a place for me to say, you know, this is really why I wanted to self-disclose, because I wanted her to understand that it's still a pleasure. Even though it might physically be a burden sometimes, it's still a pleasure to have her present in a relationship of 44 years that they've loved. She's going to want her as every day that she can. And so I think that was a, it, it worked for them. You know, and um, you know, I probably didn't reiterate the story as well as it probably happened in real time. But um, there are reasons to self-disclose, and I think that we have to be aware that they're not for us, but that they're for the patients. That we want to move them to a different space, to help them sort of incorporate some information. Relating core to nursing practice, obviously. Um, and there are turning points that we have to be aware of as we're relating to patients and their families. During, um, you know, at different points along a disease trajectory when we may have to make choices or there's a new progression of disease, um, that they may be dying and we might want, they might want to talk about it. Um, a patient shows signs of protecting privacy and so I think it's tough. We have to be aware of that and under, try to understand a little bit more about it. And the patient's anxiety shifts from treatment to existential matters and I think you know, it's hard. I think a lot of us are sort of afraid of, of talking about existential matters, but, um, you know, it's, it still is sort of understanding what bothers them, what worries them. Uh, it's an important part of what we do in, in this kind of work and in nursing practice to really understand the spiritual piece as well. In practice, we adapt our communication. We give time and space. We try again with a new tactic if we need to. We diffuse topics. We don't force a piece of information. We have to let the family, um, we take the family where they're at, take the patient and family where they're at, and gently probe. And over time and over continuity, we'll have an opportunity to sort of gently push them or probe a little bit more to help them come to more prognostic awareness. Um, but if we try to force them, they'll, they'll never come back to see us again. And so I think it's important to understand that there's going to be these openings, these times where, oh, that's a little sliver of opportunity where I can recognize it's time to sort of maybe open that door a little bit more. So it seems really hard for you to talk today about your illness. And I, I want to, you know, I recognize that, you might say. And you might say, but we're going to have to talk about it at some point, and I wonder what what will help you to feel safe to do that, you know? And it may be that they have to start planning for their daughters, you know, and their, their, their children, guardianship issues, things like that. Um, and we may have to talk about those things. And I think it's going to be important to just be open that there's some things that we should do planning for, you know? Like this patient I saw, she's like, I know what you're about. You're, you want to talk about that DNR thing that's supposed to be hooked onto my refrigerator. And I said, you don't want to talk about that right now, do you? She's like, no. And I said, well, we don't really need to talk about that today because there are a couple things that I think we need to do before we even get there. And the first thing we need to do, because she had ALS, is we need to talk about, well, what would you want and how to protect your spouse? You know, you worry about her. We want to make sure that we protect her. So she needs to know what you want to do in case that BiPAP's not going to work for you anymore. Or when, it's, when you need it 24-7, would you ever want to trach? Or would you ever want to go on a ventilator? Have you thought about that? And so sometimes they may not want to talk about that tough issue that's really hard to talk about. But there may be ways that you can sort of get there slowly and open the door and even talk about what their wishes might be prior to even that bad event. And so that helped because she's like, no, that would be like cheating God. I don't want to go on a ventilator. So you want to be at home? Yeah. I want to die at home. And you want Nancy there? Yeah. And you want to have hospice care? Absolutely. So, so that's how we got there. So 
sometimes um, just being aware of when those openings are and how to make it safe for patients to talk about certain things and not to push them. So um, we've talked a lot about this already. And then team. So what I struggle with the most in nursing in, in what I do is working in teams. What is the most rewarding? Working in teams. And teamwork is tough because everybody brings different things to the table. So it's wonderful because we get so many wonderful things out of it. We make healthcare better for patients because we hear the expertise and of the interdisciplinary team. But, you know, and I, I, I like this quote. I think it's sort of a, a typical quote that Ira used to always give. Uh, and he was our former director. And he, he used to always quote Balmont, who said, so you say you're a team, let me see your scars. And let me tell you, there are a lot of scars when you work in teams. Things happen. Emotions, there's jealousy, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. But I think the benefits, as we talk to patients about risks and benefits, the benefits outweigh the risks and the benefits outweigh um, the tough times. And so team is an important part of communication because we can enhance patient care by sharing resources and shared and understanding that we have the shared power. We are part of this team. And you know, yes, there's you know, we, we still have this hierarchy in medicine. And um, but we don't need to play into that. We're nurses, we're part of that team, we should be at those family meetings and we should be able to share what we observe for the patient and family. And we respect each other's credibility and expertise. That was that's what makes it so worthwhile. Um, and then we also have to continue to even, you know, have relational communication, caring communication with our team colleagues. So we can make things better through shared information. We can make things better for patients and families by collaborating and, um, and serving the patient. And, accessing, uh, and accessibility to the team helps us not only um, grow in knowledge and experience as providers and nurses and physicians, but also helps us in providing best care for the patient. So um, we have a collective ownership of the goals. We share responsibility for holistic care. Um, we, um, the team is joined by the experience. It's that shared experience that helps us get through tough times and that we view the patient as an, as an important part of the team. And obviously, we share a common purpose. It's really about what we're here for, and that's the patients and the families. So what's our role as nurses in, in facilitating teamwork, um, problem solving, to create solutions? Nurses are always sort of seeing, you know, I think, we see glo more globally than some of our other colleagues. And I'm not talking, you know, not to be, uh, you know, putting down anybody else, because everybody has the ability to see globally. And, and there are special, you know, there are people in all different sorts of, of work that do. But, but it's sort of core to what we do. We, we really look at the patient holistically and the family and the world around them and their experience. And I think, because of that global sort of vision, we can really help advocate for patients in care discussions. We can help family understand and find meaning. We're the people at the bedside who can, who really can use the family's language to help them understand. We interpret information and use our expertise to um, help guide families and help them in symptom management. And we can articulate then back to the team what the patients and families' wishes are. You know, many times, if teams know what we know or what we've learned, we can help them in their coping and in their resiliency, and we can help each other. So in summary, I just want to say that communication should always be driven by the narrative. It's about who these patients and families are. It's about what, what they experience. And using that information to help guide them, to help shape their health care that's in accordance with their goals and their preferences. That's what nursing is all about. That's what being patient-centered is all about. To prioritize the family, because it's the family 
that oftentimes drives the plan of care. You know, if we don't know what's going on in the family, and it's also the family that drives the patient's, you know, um, decisions, you know. If I got struck with cancer tomorrow that was terminal, frankly, I got a kid who's six and a kid who's eight, I would be taking some aggressive chemotherapy, even though I'm a palliative nurse and maybe it might not give me much time, but I might do that just to, for that sliver of hope that it may give me more time. Recognizing how important family is and how really it all comes down to what's most important in our lives, what matters most, and that's how we make decisions. Um, to really think about this kind of communication, not as palliative nursing per se or palliative communication, but communication that should happen at all times, at the time of diagnosis, of a serious illness, or any illness for that matter. And then to adapt this communication to patients and families among teams and among clinicians. It's what we do best. You know, nurses are good communicators. And I think that this really is not to, to this lecture is really not to say, here, you need to learn this, and this is how you do it. This is to confirm and affirm everything that we've been doing as nurses um, along, you know, our careers, and to also say that this is really a core of palliative care and palliative nursing, and it's embedded in nursing practice. Who better to do this kind of work but nurses? And, um, and so we know how to do this, and this is really a curriculum that we can go more in depth and learn more about mindfulness, learn more about narrative nursing, and um, so if you ever wanted to use this curriculum and we wanted to think about that, we can certainly do that together. But um, does anybody have any questions or stories we want to talk about? Yeah. Sometimes I have trouble getting patients to palliative care. Yeah. Well, I'm not there. I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not dying yet. I, you know, I think it's, for some reason I think it's a ter terrible name. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been struggling with that a lot. And one of the things we have done, actually, and you could use this in the cancer center if you want, um, is in the ICU, we call it the decision support team. Um, and we're not really, you know, shared decision making. We use some principles there, but really we are this, we, you know, we call ourselves decision support because in order to help pa patients and families do all of this, it's, it's, it's really core to palliative care and palliative nursing as we've talked about. So, you know, it is hard, but you can, you can describe palliative care as, you know, it's this great team. And yeah, you know that name, it used to be associated with end of life, but in our cancer center, we have been innovative. We have gotten people involved in palliative care at the time of diagnosis. So that's just, they've been embedded in our cancer center since 2000. It's just part of what we do. It's part of the care we provide. It's an extra layer of support. They, they just provide a wonderful extra layer of support. So you can talk about it that way. Yeah, I talk about the fact that you deal with, yes, you have your radiation oncologist, you have your chemotherapist, and your intensive surgeon, but they kind of look at the whole person. Right. And it's more of living well than dying well. Yep. And that's perfect. They, they, we deal with the whole person. We're a team, extra layer of support. You know, there was a study that was done recently that looked at how people describe palliative care to patients, and they found that when, um, when patients hear extra layer of support, they say yes versus palliative care. So, so that's a nice uh, term to use, and, they, and the holistic care that we, we look at the whole person. Yeah. Anybody else have any patients that they've struggled with or communication issues that they've struggled with that we want to, that we can address <coughs> today? Yeah. Well, I struggle and I try and support the struggling nurses when they're dealing with patients, either the patient is angry or the family is angry or they're both angry. Um, and it's very off-putting to staff, understandably, and I'm drawn back to Here I can see So anyway, it was a patient who, with AML who was here for a long time. She was probably in her 50s, and she had been in an abusive relationship with her husband forever. I mean, he was emotionally abusive. He was potentially, at times, physically abusive. Um, and she had children who were now grown, 
So she was now home alone with this guy, and she was horribly angry about you know all the tough knocks, literally, that she had gotten in life. And now she was facing end of life, and she was deciding she literally could not leave this man because he was her economic stability and he was her caretaker, you know, for better or worse. And, you know, the nurses were just like so freaked out by this whole thing because how could this be? Um, and and she would express herself in very angry ways with everybody because, of course, why wouldn't she be angry? Look at what she's going through. So, you know, I, that was a very challenging support that I needed to provide for both her and also for the staff so that they spent more than one nanosecond in a room because it was so hard to be in the room with this person who was so angry. And I'm just curious about how you you and your team focus on that because I know that's a challenge for all of us. So we, we basically say, please consult Peggy Plunkett. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we, Mel, right? So, I, yeah, we say, Peggy, no. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's hard, and I, I don't know what it is, but, you know, right off the top of my head, I, I can't think of a ton of uh, angry patients, except I think it's just that approach where you sit down next to them, you know, you've always got to sit, sit down. And you say, yeah, <laughs> what? Arms length away. Yeah, well, <laughs> if they're not wielding their fists, then I think it's okay. Um, and just say, hey, you know, you're angry. I get it. I be PO2. This sucks. I use that word. Um, but, you know, you need the care. So let's figure out how we can all work together. You know, and it might just be that, you know, just say, you know, just approaching them in that way and then helping the, the nurses, as you do, understand the background and the family situation. Let's have a little bit, you know, uh, if we understand and understand their goals, I think it's a lot easier to accept. I mean, we can't have patients hitting people and dropping the F-bomb and all of that. I mean, there is, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of listening and letting it all out. And sometimes there might be one person who could take all of that. All right, look, you can dish that out to me right now, but you can't be treating the nurses that way, you know. And sometimes that's just a way to approach it. I don't know, Deb, you you probably dealt with a whole lot more angry. I'm putting you on the spot, angry patients than I have. Do you have any other suggestions? I think one of the things that strikes me in, in working with some of the nurses who have been challenged um, by caring for a slightly different population of folks with traumatic brain injury and aggressive behavior is to help the nurses to maintain some degree of connectivity and empathy. So, and to kind of suspend the judgment or the over-identification. So in a situation of, you know, maybe a domestic violence situation, I think that the nurse's resistance, sometimes the nurse's resistance to taking care of that patient is one of fear. Like, oh my God, I wouldn't want to be in that position and I wouldn't want to, you know, what would I do if? And if we can separate that a little bit and help maintain the connectivity and a sense of empathy to at least provide the care. The other thing that comes to mind is to thinking about it as a conflict mediation situation. What is the lowest common denominator? What is the thing that the patient and the nurse can agree on? What's the most basic element of what needs to happen that day that cannot, um, where neither side can have an argument against? So to find the least common denominator but yet um, uh, suspend the rest of the judgment or over-identification. So you might say, so look, you, you got to get your meds. That's important. But you don't have to, you don't have to go to PT today or something. I mean, you might make some to go. Not PT. No, no, no. You have, look, you, I don't, you do not have to have your meds, but you have to go to PT today. as a threat sometimes <laughs> to help patients get get things done. Anything else? We have a lot of experts in the room. All of you are experts in this work and in communication. And I appreciate you coming today and learning a little bit about the comfort curriculum. Uh, obviously, it was a brief uh, overview. 
but uh, each section really is things um, can be more in-depth learning about how to do this better. Um, in my 20 or so years of doing palliative nursing, um, I feel like I grow every single day. And um, I'm learning from my nursing colleagues and my physician colleagues and my social work and PT colleagues. I mean, it's always about learning and it's about supporting each other and that's how we get through it. So thank you for coming.